0: Thank you for listening to Foreign Languages Press audiobooks. If you'd like to support the publishing house or this audiobook project, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com foreignlanguagespress or by clicking the support this podcast link in the episode description. Thanks so much for supporting revolutionary media. The Palestinian Bourgeoisie The Palestinian Bourgeoisie is essentially a business and banking bourgeoisie whose interests are interconnected among its members and are linked with the business and banking interests of imperialism. The wealth of this class is derived from brokerage transactions in foreign goods, insurance operations, and banking business. Therefore, in the strategic field, this class is against the revolution that aims at putting an end to the existence of imperialism and its interests in our homeland, which means the destruction of its sources of wealth. Since our battle against Israel is at the same time a battle against imperialism, this class will stand by its own interests, that is, with imperialism against the revolution. Naturally, this strategic analysis is not perfectly clear to all. It is also natural that it should be pervaded by tactical and temporary positions, as well as by some exceptions. But this should not prevent us at any time from having a long-range strategic view of things and of the general picture. On what scientific basis can it be said that all classes of the Palestinian people are among the forces of the revolution? Our revolution today is an armed one. Are the classes of the Palestinian people among the forces of this armed revolution? After June 5, 1967, the young men of the camps and villages took up arms, hid in the mountains, and fortified themselves in cities. They directed their bullets against Israel and faced Israeli bullets with their bodies. At exactly the same time, the traditional bourgeois leaderships were receiving Sassoon, Dayan, And other Israeli leaders to discuss with them the Palestinian setup that Israel had planned for the purpose of liquidating the Palestinian question, thus achieving political triumph after having attained military victory. These attempts would have been successful had they not been foiled by the escalation of commando action. During that period, the young men of the camps were giving death to and receiving death from Israel, while the merchants on the West Bank were seeking to link their interests anew with the enemy state. In view of all of this, it was permissible for us to hear such slogans as, quote, We are all commandos, unquote, or quote, The Palestinian people with all its classes are taking part in the armed struggle, unquote, or quote, No rich and no poor so long as we remain homeless, unquote, without evaluating and criticizing them and preventing their spread? The revolution is science, and scientific thought looks for tangible facts. We will not be misled by deceptive mottos and slogans which are at variance with the facts and which are launched by certain class forces in defense of their interests. The Palestinian bourgeoisie that now lives in Palestine under Zionist occupation is not among the forces of the revolution, although it has not manifestly associated itself with Israel, and will in reality remain the class force through which the enemies will always try to defeat the revolution and stop it in the middle of the road. The Palestinian bourgeoisie now living outside Palestine has at present no conflict of interest with commando action, So long as this action at the present stage lives generally within certain specific theoretical, political, and fighting horizons. It, therefore, sometimes supports commando action by giving a small portion of its surplus wealth, but we must expect that the revolutionary growth of the Palestinian national movement to the level where it manifestly clashes with imperialism will lead this bourgeoisie to take the stand that conforms to its class interests. Of course, we admit that certain sectors of this bourgeoisie may be an exception to the rule in that, By virtue of the special character of the Palestine question, they may remain on the side of the revolution and abstain from working against it. But such exceptions should not make us lose sight of the general law that will govern the position of this class vis-a-vis the revolution in general. The principle that advocates the necessity of taking advantage of any force that may assist the revolution temporarily is a sound one. And so is the principle that the qualified leadership is that which mobilizes the widest possible front to stand in the face of the main conflict, and we should act accordingly provided that we do not do so at the expense of the clarity of our political thought. Clear political thought is the only road leading to the recruitment and mobilization of the true forces of the revolution. The recruitment and mobilization of the true forces of the revolution in light of clear scientific political thought is the fundamental condition for the success of the revolution. It is more important than all the financial assistance if the price of this assistance is to be the dilution of our clear view of things. In light of this, we may now visualize the forces of the revolution on the Palestinian level as a whole. The forces of the revolution are the workers and peasants, the inhabitants of the camps, villages, and poor districts. An alliance with the Palestinian petite bourgeoisie, which also constitutes a revolutionary force, in spite of the fact that such alliance carries with it an intellectual and strategic conflict, which must be settled in favor of the workers' leadership, thought, and strategy, taking advantage, at least temporarily, of any sector of the Palestinian bourgeoisie without allowing such alliance, any advantage to lead us to any ambiguity in view of our own revolutionary forces and the clarity of their strategy and programs. The bourgeoisie numerically constitutes only a very small section of the community. It is a well-known fact that the bourgeoisie is one-half percent or one percent of the community. Moreover, this is not the class that takes up arms or is ready to fight and die in defense of the freedom of the country and the people. Consequently, any attempt to picture this class analysis of the forces of the revolution as leading to the dissipation of the nation's forces and driving these forces into an internal conflict would be scientifically untrue. In light of this analysis, the revolution does not lose any effective fighting force. On the contrary, it gains clarity of view and a sound definition of the positions of the forces and places the poor classes face to face with their responsibilities and the leadership of the revolution thus giving rise to a national battle in which the overwhelming majority of the masses of our people will stand in the face of Israel, imperialism, and reaction, under the leadership of the poor whom Israel have reduced to a state of misery and poverty that they experience daily and that deprives them of their human character and life and value. Organization and Mobilization of Palestinian Revolutionary Forces What is the form of organization for the mobilization of the forces of the revolution on the basis of this analysis? What is the form of the relations among these forces in light of the existing Palestinian situation? What is our concept of Palestinian national unity in light of all of this? Political organization armed with the theory of scientific socialism is the highest form for the organization and mobilization of the working class forces on the greatest scale. This is a fact that has been made perfectly clear by all revolutionary experiences in this century. The experiences of China, Vietnam, and Cuba, as well as the experience of October Revolution, all point to and confirm this fact. By clarifying and scientifically explaining the state of misery suffered by the working class, by revealing the process of exploitation of this class by imperialism and capitalism, by indicating the nature of the major conflict in which the communities of the present age are living on international and local levels, by explaining the motion of history and its trend, by defining the role of the working class and the importance of this role, and by indicating the weapons possessed by this class, scientific socialist theory renders the working class conscious of its existence, conditions, and future, thus permitting the mobilization of the forces of this class on the greatest scale. Scientific socialist ideology and world revolutionary experiences have indicated clearly how revolutionary political organization, armed with a revolutionary theory, the theory of the working class, is the way to self-organization by the working class, the concentration of its forces, the consolidation of its potentialities, and the definition of its strategy and its battle. If the experiences of the Palestinian and Arab national movement have not hitherto achieved success in confronting and triumphing over imperialism, Zionism, Israel, and the forces of reaction, it is because they have not adopted this organization theory. The failure of political organizations in the Palestinian and Arab field does not constitute a condemnation of the political organization of parties in general. Or rather a condemnation of a line of political organizations which have not been set up from the ideological class and organizational viewpoints on the basis of this theory and these experiences. The revolutionary promotion of the Palestinian national movement cannot rest on the condemnation of the idea of revolutionary political organization as a principle, and the only way before it is to adopt the political organization, the nature of which has been defined in light of scientific socialist theory and past experiences. This organizational form is the organizational framework for the concentration of the basic revolutionary force, the working class. Moreover, it is this form that is capable during the stages of national liberation, as the major revolutionary experiences have proved, of mobilizing the peasant forces and of concentrating them on the greatest scale. Consequently, by adopting this form, we would have created the framework for the organization and mobilization of the basic revolutionary classes represented by the workers and peasants. But what about the petite bourgeoisie? According to our analysis, the petite bourgeoisie is also one of the forces of revolution. Can we mobilize it within this framework? If not, what is the organizational framework that would enable us to mobilize and concentrate all the revolutionary forces? The Palestinian petite bourgeoisie will not, in its majority, enter into the organizational framework that rests on the basis of a political party organization armed with scientific socialist theory. The socialist thought of the revolution is not the thought of this class, and the strong, binding, and disciplined party organization is not the organizational form in which it finds its satisfaction. The petite bourgeoisie prefers to be bound by a general, loose thought that does not go beyond general liberation slogans, and by a political organization that does not impose on its demands beyond its capacity. Therefore, it will not align itself within this frame, but will address itself to other Palestinian organizations that do not clearly adopt scientific socialist theory and the revolutionary political party organization adhering to this theory. In light of this, the complete organizational form that is capable of containing all the revolutionary forces is the political party organization form adopting scientific socialism that is capable of mobilizing the workers and peasants on the greatest scale and that at the same time calls for the rise of a national front to achieve an alliance between the workers and peasants, the basic classes and mainstay of the revolution, and the petite bourgeoisie as one of the forces of revolution. This completes our picture of the revolutionary forces on the Palestinian level and the organizational form capable of mobilizing them. In our opinion, this is the form that is fully consistent with the scientific analysis of things and objectively concurs with the interests of the revolution. This form provides a clear view of the battle on the one hand and permits the greatest scale of mobilization of the basic revolutionary forces on the other, at the same time ensuring the widest possible front to stand in the face of the enemy camp. The wide national front proposed in light of this picture is, in our opinion, the revolutionary realization of Palestinian national unity. If Palestinian national unity is intended to mean the concentration of all revolutionary forces at the stage of democratic national liberation, To stand in the face of the basic conflict with Israel, imperialism, and reaction, then this is the form that serves this end. These three classes which meet within the frame of the front represent, even numerically, the overwhelming majority of the Palestinian people. The national unity that is advocated by some and that is intended to enable the traditional leaderships, the bourgeoisie, and the forces of reaction to infiltrate into the ranks of the revolution, and is intended also to undermine the ideas of revolutionary political party organization and to obscure any clarity in the political thought of the revolution is clearly against the interests of that revolution. The foregoing clearly indicates the basic lines of our position regarding the subject of relations among the Palestinian forces. These lines enable us to define our position with regard to all subjects and problems arising on this level and serve to clarify our position with regard to the existing picture of the Palestinian field and the direction in which we must exercise our efforts to establish objective relations among the forces and organizations of the Palestinian Revolution. 1. We regard Palestinian national unity as a basic factor for the mobilization of all forces of the revolution to confront the enemy camp, and on this basis we must take an effective position to achieve it. 2. The form of national unity is the rise of a front in which all classes of the revolution, workers, peasants, and petite bourgeoisie will be represented. Three, we must take action to mobilize the workers and peasants in one single revolutionary political organization armed with scientific socialist theory. On this basis, we must effectively endeavor to unite all Palestinian leftist organizations that, through contact and experience, can be persuaded to adopt this analysis. Four, the petite bourgeoisie will not join this form of organization, which adheres to scientific socialism and strong political organization but will join those Palestinian organizations that content themselves with general liberation slogans, avoiding clarity in thinking and class view, and leading an organizational life that does not demand of it anything beyond its capacity. In other words, this class will fill Fatah and the Palestinian liberation organization PLO in the first place. Five, on this basis, and on the basis of our view of the main conflict and the nature of the stage, as well as the necessity of achieving that national unity that will group together all the forces of the revolution to stand in the face of Israel, we must work for the establishment of a national front with Fatah, and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the Palestine Liberation Organization, which will provide the battle with the necessary class alliance on the one hand, and preserve that right of each to view and plan for the battle according to its class horizon on the other. This is our view of the forces of the Palestinian revolution in the form of their mobilization and concentration. The form that we propose here for the relations among the basic Palestinian forces draws the general strategic line that will govern our course. It is obvious that in following the course indicated by this line, we will meet many obstacles and complications that will require us tactically to define in each period with as much detail as possible, a picture consistent with the nature of that period, and the nature of the conditions of the various Palestinian forces existing and active at any one time. However, it is this line that will govern such a definition in general. Now, does our strategic thought about the Palestine liberation struggle stop at the frontiers of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian field? If we remember the enemy camp and recall its size and nature, we will immediately realize that any strategic thinking about the Palestinian liberation struggle must cover the mobilization of all forces of the revolution on the Arab and world levels. Because it is only through such mobilization and concentration that we can create the power capable of confronting Israel, Zionism, world imperialism, and Arab reaction. The Palestinian revolution, which is fused together with the Arab revolution and in alliance with the world revolution, is alone capable of achieving victory. To confine the Palestinian revolution within the limits of the Palestinian people would mean failure, if we remember the nature of the enemy alliance that we are facing. Forces of the revolution on the Arab level what are the forces of revolution on the Arab level? How shall we mobilize them? What is the form of relations between the Palestinian national liberation movements and the Arab forces? The mobilization and concentration of the revolutionary forces on the Palestinian level, even though a political organization adhering to and guided by scientific socialism, mobilizing the downtrodden classes on the greatest scale, and forming with the petite bourgeoisie United Front, will not suffice to create a revolutionary camp capable of gaining superiority over the enemy camp, consisting of a strong and wide front that includes Israel, the Zionist movement, imperialism, and Arab reaction. The strategy of the Palestine liberation struggle requires the mobilization and concentration of all the forces of revolution in the Arab countries, in general, and the Arab region surrounding Israel in particular. This is the reason why the popular front lays so much stress on the interconnection between the Palestinian question and the Arab question, and on the necessity of coalescence between the Palestine liberation movement and the Arab liberation movement. It is also the reason for the necessity of laying strategic emphasis on the quote, Arab Hanoi unquote, motto, as a revolutionary principle creating coalescence between the Palestinian revolution and the Arab revolution, and forming a firm foundation for the Palestinian and Arab national liberation movement, which would enable it to stand in the face of the enemy camp and gain superiority over it. Although we do not say that the mobilization of the revolution in the Arab field is one of the immediate tasks of the Palestinian revolution, We may say that the fate of the Palestinian revolution and the armed struggle, commando action, now being carried out by the Palestinian people depends on the extent of their coalescence with a revolutionary strategy that aims at mobilizing the forces of revolution in Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Iraq, and the rest of the Arab countries. The crisis that Palestinian resistance is undergoing does not only from its failure to fulfill all the ideological, strategic, and organizational conditions that must be fulfilled by any victorious national liberation movement in our age. This crisis, which will continue to constitute the Achilles' heel of Palestinian resistance, is due to the fact that this resistance exists under conditions in Arab lands, which hamper it and threaten to liquidate the question through the implementation of the Security Council's resolution of November 22, 1967, instead of constituting a revolutionary support to reinforce it, widen its field of authority, and give it additional power. In this light, the Palestine liberation strategy as a battle against Israel, Zionism, imperialism, and Arab reaction requires a revolutionary Palestinian strategy in coalescence with a revolutionary Arab strategy. The armed struggle against Israel and all imperialist interests in our homeland, the expansion of the armed struggle front, which stands in the face of Arab reaction, and all imperialist interests and basis in the Arab homeland, and the encirclement of Israel with the strategy of the people's liberation war from every side, from Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, and inside the territory occupied before and after June 5, 1967, is the only path that leads to victory. It is not important that the Palestinian people should register a heroic stand through commando action. The important thing is liberation and victory. In light of our definition of the enemy camp, the way to liberation is a revolutionary Palestinian and Arab front which will bring maturity, protection, and support to commando action and pave the way to its expansion so that it will encircle Israel on every side and involve all the enemy forces that furnish Israel with support and protection. The strategy of revolutionary Arab action coincides with its broad lines with that of Palestinian revolutionary action. The basis of this coincidence is that the nature of the stage now being traversed by the Arab countries is identical for all of them in light of israel's occupation of sinai and the golan heights its very existence and its persistence as a base from which imperialism prepares to attack any move toward arab liberation in light of this concrete picture the stage that the arab peoples are now traversing is that of national liberation of democratic national revolution notwithstanding the class and economic changes that have taken place in egypt syria algeria and iraq in the direction of socialist transformation The strategy of the democratic national revolution in this age has become clear through the Vietnamese experience and before it the Cuban and Chinese experience. The main lines of this strategy are the mobilization and concentration of the forces of the poor workers and peasants on the greatest scale, the leadership of the revolution by these classes through a political organization that adheres to, and is guided by the ideology of scientific socialism in alliance with the forces of the petite bourgeoisie whose interests do not conflict with the nature of the democratic national revolution and reliance on the armed struggle to overcome the enemy's technological superiority through a protracted war commencing with guerrilla warfare and developing into a popular liberation war that the people are determined to win. The national liberation movement in the Arab countries has not yet crystallized along these lines. In the nature of the clash between Israel and the surrounding Arab countries, all this will create the objective circumstances that will pave the way for and assist the birth and growth of a national liberation movement, that will adopt this strategy under the leadership of the workers and peasants. This alliance, and later the coalescence of the Palestinian National Liberation Movement with the Arab National Liberation Movement, will give rise to the Palestinian Arab Force and the Palestinian Arab Strategy, which is capable of triumphing in a long and hard battle imposed by the nature of the enemy we are facing. It remains for the Palestinian National Liberation Movement to define its Arab relations in light of the circumstances now prevailing in the Arab field, Arab capitalism and feudalism are still the ruling class in some Arab countries. The rule of these classes is at present represented by the reactionary regimes in Jordan, Lebanon, and certain other Arab countries. The regimes are linked in interest with world imperialism led by the United States, and in spite of the partial and sometimes purely outward conflict between these regimes and Israel, this partial conflict exists in the shadow of an objective concurrence with world capitalism. Thus the relation of the armed struggle, now Palestinian and later Arab, is on the strategic level, one of conflict with these regimes notwithstanding any tactical positions imposed on both sides by temporary considerations. This is as regards the national liberation movement's relation with the capitalist and reactionary regimes. However, the delicate situation facing the Palestinian armed struggle and the Palestine national liberation movement is the definition of relations with the national regimes in the Arab field, particularly the national regimes surrounding Israel or in the vicinity of the field of battle, namely Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. Any fearless revolutionary evaluation of these regimes must be essentially based on the June defeat and on its consequences and meanings, as well as on the strategy, programs, and positions subsequent to that defeat. Any attempt at diluting or confusing the clear view of the defeat and of its meanings and lessons cannot but be the result of a subjective and biased interest or an idealistic and sentimental view that is remote from science, objectivity, and fearless frankness in viewing things. The June defeat led to the occupation of the whole of Palestine as well as the Golden Heights and Sinai, the dispersion of hundreds of thousands of citizens and the humiliation of an entire nation. Consequently, the revolutionary position is one that cannot temporize or bargain or dilute the clear view, which alone enables us to analyze and understand the June defeat, and eventually to see the political and military strategy that will assure us of our perseverance and victory in battle. As well as the Arab national parties and organizations viewed these regimes as revolutionary, progressive regimes capable of leading to the liberation of Palestine and the realization of the aims and objectives of the masses. At the time when indications of the June War began to appear, neither the masses nor the forces concerned expected a defeat of the type that occurred in June. The June defeat confirmed the gross error in our perspective of things. There was error in the knowledge and clear definition of the enemy, the evaluation of its plans and of its contingents and the determination of its contingents and the potentialities of each of these contingents. There was error in the definition of the stage and greater error in the evaluation of the entire revolutionary existence that these national regimes, organizations, and Arab national institutions has curbed. What is the sound scientific evaluation of these regimes? Following the First World War, the occupation by France and Britain of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan, and the entrenchment of these colonial powers in Egypt and other parts of the Arab homeland, the national liberation movement waged by the masses against colonialism was led by feudalists, aristocrats, and members of the bourgeoisie. Such leaders were Haj Amin al-Husseini in the Arab party in Palestine, and Shukri al quwatli in the Nationalist party in Syria, and there was a similar type of leadership in the other Arab countries. Even the armed revolts that the masses of our people directed against the forces of occupation were under the political leadership of the bourgeoisie. The masses saw from the course of events that this class, and its struggle with colonialism, aimed at nothing more than obtaining an outward form of independence that would place it at the top of the power pyramid. This made it a partner to the colonialists in their exploitation of the masses' toil, and gave it a share in profits from capitalist investments in our homeland, without any regard for the liberation and unification slogans for which the masses had paid their blood. When the masses saw all this, the conflict began between these feudal, aristocratic, and bourgeois leaders, and their political parties on the one hand, and the movement of the masses on the other. At this new stage in the struggle, the masses were led by groups of educated young men, professionals, and free army officers, who mainly belonged to and acted through the petite bourgeoisie. The petite bourgeoisie was a growing class, and it was this class that led the masses in their struggle with the bourgeoisie and the feudalists, who were directly or indirectly in alliance with colonialist capitalism. In the late 30s and the early 40s, these attempts took the form of political and military parties and organizations, both pan-Arab and local. In 1948, Israel was set up and the disaster took place. This revealed to the masses the truth about the puppet independent regimes established by the bourgeoisie, their importance in the face of Israel, and their radical opposition to the masses' objectives. Thus, the 1948 disaster paved the way for the fall of some of these regimes and the assumption of power by political and military national organizations, led by national elements belonging to the petite bourgeoisie. Such organizations generally consisted of members of this class and worked among the workers and peasants who rallied around these new organizations and conditions because they stood in the face of the reactionary alliance among colonialism, feudalism, and capitalism. Undoubtedly, the international situation resulting from the Second World War, represented by Soviet victory and the rise of a number of European socialist powers, was a basic factor in the rise and survival of these new Arab regimes. Thus, the basic conflict in the area crystallized in the following manner. The alliance of the workers, peasants, and petite bourgeoisie under the leadership of the petite bourgeoisie against colonialism, Arab reaction in Israel. The first national regime to appear in the Arab world on the basis of this picture was the Nasser regime in Egypt, and then the picture extended to include Syria, Iraq, Algeria, and South Yemen. The Nasser regime was and still is the clearest and most crystallized example of this picture. In any historical evaluation of these regimes and what they represented in the Arab field in the '50s and until June 1967, we must not lose sight of the major revolutionary achievements realized by these regimes, particularly the Nasser regime. This regime was able to get rid of the British occupation forces stationed in the Suez Canal Zone, wage war against all the colonialist military pact through which colonialism tried to get back into the area under the pretext of defense pacts against the Soviet peril. And do away with the colonialist reactionary alliance that controlled the destiny of Egypt and its masses. Moreover, it broke the blockade imposed by colonialism on the area and established military, political, and economic relations with the socialist camp. Furthermore, it placed Egyptian national action within its Arab national horizon and framework and accomplished the first achievement of union in modern Arab history. It also established a link between political liberation and the social issue. Laid down an agrarian reform that involved land ownership and relations between farmers and landowners, nationalized the major industries and commercial enterprises, and raised development projects based on public ownership. It set Egypt on the road of socialist transformation and accompanied these transformations with similar ones in the field of revolutionary thought. By this, it lifted revolutionary thought from the level of general liberation. Unionist and socialist slogans to the beginnings of a class view of the revolutionary forces, and the beginnings of the adoption of the general socialist course in viewing and analyzing the movements of progress. These are the headings of the major achievements accomplished by the Nasser regime, on the basis of which the other national regimes in Syria and Iraq have tried to proceed. These achievements created a state of alarm in the opposing camp led by the U.S., for the purpose of thwarting this march through various means, including the overthrow of these regimes by force. Such a state of alarm called for a similar state of alarm with which these regimes could rise to a new revolutionary level by politically, economically mobilizing the forces of the masses to a degree that ensures steadfastness, perseverance, and victory. But these regimes continued to move within programs and plans opposed on them by their class nature. At this point, the problem of structure of these regimes and the problems of their plans began to emerge. In the middle 60s, the Nasher regime began to live through this problem without being able to overcome it until the June defeat which came to reveal clearly the problem relating to the structure of this regime and its inability within this class nature to triumph over the imperialist reactionary Zionist-Israeli camp. The nature of these national regimes was formed as a result of the organizations they had set up, their view of things, and of the extent to which they had gone in their socialist transformations and the new class conditions that they had produced. These regimes struck at the interests of feudalism and capitalism, and their exploitation of the masses, but they preserved the petite bourgeoisie and its interests in the industrial, agricultural, and commercial sectors, at the same time producing a new class of military men, politicians, and administrative personnel, whose interests became interlocked with those of the petite bourgeoisie, thus forming with it the upper class in these communities. The interests of this upper class require the maintenance of the experiment within limits that do not conflict with its interests or with its thinking in view of the battle. This class is antagonistic to colonialism and reaction, but at the same time wants to keep these privileges that it enjoys. It is this state of affairs that has defined the nature of the political, economic, military, and ideological programs of these regimes. It is on this basis that this class has formulated its view of confrontation with colonialism in Israel through the military institution for it realizes that the popular liberation war means that its right to the position of leadership is contingent upon its willingness to sacrifice all its privileges and follow the same living pattern as the commandos of today. On this basis, also a loose form for the political mobilization of the masses has been put forth because the truly revolutionary mobilization of the masses through a political party, organization, in connection with the armed struggle, means the rise of new leadership from among the workers and peasants as it means the ability of the masses to supervise this class and call it to account. Accordingly, this class has laid down its economic programs, which make the socialist transformation stop the existing limits. Eventually, this class has produced political thought that dilutes the view of the true nature of the struggle, the true nature of the stage, and the true nature of the programs that are capable of persisting and enduring, as well as diluting the view of the process still existing in these regimes of exploiting the labor of the workers and peasants. Thus, the June defeat does not for us constitute a mere military defeat. It is in reality a defeat for these regimes and their programs and their inability to affect military, economic, and ideological mobilization that is capable of resisting and triumphing over imperialism and its alliances and plans in our homeland. Even after the June defeat, these regimes have continued to move within these same military programs. Through their alliance with the Soviet Union, they aim to wage a tactical military battle ending with the removal of all traces of the aggression if it should prove impossible to implement the Security Council's resolution through means other than war, it being understood that purports at the same time to obtain recognition of Israel's right to exist within new safe frontiers. These regimes support commando action but only as a revolutionary tactic to exert pressure on imperialism in Israel to push them towards the implementation of the Security Council's resolution on the basis of a settlement that might be acceptable to these regimes. The national regimes are still moving within this strategy against the radical revolutionary strategy that seeks a long-term popular liberation war waged by the masses under the leadership of the working class and the peasants on the basis of radical political, military, and economic programs, Represented before us today by the Vietnamese Liberation Movement, which has proved that it is only with such a formula that we are able to face imperialism and its technological, economic, and military superiority. When we present the Vietnamese Liberation Movement, which is waging a triumphant struggle against the U.S. and Vietnamese reaction, as an example of successful liberation movements in this age, we do not at all ignore the special nature of our battle, both in respect of the nature of imperialist presence, represented by Israel and our homeland, and in respect of the special nature of the land. We always mean, in fact, the main strategic lines of the Vietnam War, represented by the strong political organization that adheres to scientific socialism and mobilizes the forces of the masses on the greatest scale under the leadership of the working class and the National Front slogan. Using the course of guerrilla warfare, the popular liberation war, the political, economic, and military mobilization resulting from all this, the protracted war, the determination to win. That determination that is embodied by the poor classes of the community, the classes that cannot continue to live under the burden of the ugly and dirty exploitation exercised by an imperialism and Vietnamese reaction. We also mean the world revolutionary alliance established by the Vietnamese liberation movement to enable it to face imperialism with all its weight, forces, and plans. In light of all this, we were able to make a scientific evaluation of the regimes and their role in the Palestinian and Arab National Liberation Movement, and eventually the form of relations between them and the revolutionary Palestinian National Liberation Movement. One, these regimes are antagonistic to imperialism, Zionism, Israel, and Arab reaction, represented by feudalism and capitalism. Two, these regimes have accomplished a number of revolutionary achievements on the way to democratic national revolution that is interlocked, as is the case in Egypt, with the commencement of the shift in the structure of the economic community in a socialist direction. Three, these regimes, by reason of the class structure resulting from their experience, are no longer capable of continuing their progress on the revolutionary road, and of raising it to the level that would enable them to face the state of alarm that has arisen in the camp of imperialism, Israel, and Arab reaction. For the programs of these regimes in facing the battle are those of the petite bourgeoisie that occupies the top of the power pyramid and the position of leadership in those regimes. Although the June War and subsequent developments have revealed the inability of this class to affect the ideological, political, military, and economic mobilization capable of holding out and harassing the enemy and of achieving victory, these regimes still adopt traditional war strategy and reform programs in an attempt to fill the wide gaps in their experiments without causing a complete radical change in their general structure. Five, in light of the fact that these regimes are antagonistic to imperialism in Israel on the one hand, and the fact that they adopt compromising non-radical programs in the face of the enemy on the other, relations with these regimes must be both of alliance and conflict at the same time, alliance because they are antagonistic to Israel, and conflict over their strategy in the struggle. Six, there will be two strategies in the face of Israeli occupation and the prosecution of the Palestinian and Arab National Liberation War. The strategy of the petite bourgeoisie, which adopts in theory or moves in practice towards a traditional war strategy through the reconstruction of the military institution, if a peaceful solution proves to be impossible, and the strategy of the working class, which adopts in theory and moves in practice towards guerrilla warfare and popular liberation war, waged by the masses under the leadership of the working class on the widest national front, opposed to imperialism and with revolutionary programs of mobilization, which will raise the ideological, political, economic, and military mobilization of the masses to the highest level. Seven, these two strategies and the forces that they represent will move together for some time under relations of alliance and conflict, until in the end, the working class strategy prevails on the Palestinian and Arab levels. It will face the enemy with a wide class alliance comprising the workers, peasants, and the petite bourgeoisie, and working class leadership, with a working-class ideology of programs and a popular liberation war that is determined and able to win. This defines the form of relations between the Palestinian National Revolution and all Arab forces. The Palestinian Revolution on the strategic level will clash with the Arab reactionary forces and the regimes representing them, and will be governed by relations of alliance and conflict with the national regimes where the petite bourgeoisie occupies the top of the power pyramid. It will establish relations of alliance in the direction of coalescence with the Arab revolutionary forces represented by the workers and peasants and their political institutions. These forces will be generated in the Arab field in general, and the Arab countries surrounding Israel in particular, by reason of the nature of the struggle and the nature of the revolutionary strategy that it will produce. Through this picture, the picture of the Palestinian Arab revolution led by the working class and comprising all anti-imperialist forces that adopt the course of guerrilla warfare, ideologically, politically, militarily, and economically to the highest level, we have a complete strategic view on the Palestine liberation battle, first on the Palestinian level, and then on the Arab level. Forces of the Revolution on the World Level World imperialism at this time has circumstances and conditions that distinguish it from what it was in previous times, and is exercising the process of exploitation of peoples by new methods that differ from its old ones. On the other hand, the camp of the anti-imperialist forces has, in respect of size and power, a new position and level that differ from those before the Second World War. The liberation movements of the world should realize the basic international facts that govern this period of history. The Palestine and Arab liberation movement does not move in a vacuum. It lives and fights in the midst of specific world circumstances that affect and react with it, and all this will determine our fate. The international ground on which national liberation movements move has always been, and will remain, a basic factor in determining people's destinies. The First World War was a war among the imperialist capitalist powers themselves, and its object was to redistribute world markets among these powers. That war was an armed explosion of the conflicts among world capitalist blocs in their race for the exploitation and plunder of people's wealth and for monopolizing their markets. That war was not a revolutionary war waged by the working class in the progressive countries and by the enslaved peoples against the exploiting capitalists. The same applies to some degree to the Second World War. Consequently, conflicts among the colonialist capitalist powers were the principal manifestation on the world stage. The forces of revolution represented by the working class in the advanced countries and by the enslaved peoples were not in a position to transform these wars into revolutionary wars that could place the basic conflict on the world level in its natural position between the exploiters and the exploited. However, the consequences of the Second World War and the events that followed in its wake crystallized the world situation in a new form. The forces of colonialism concentrated and crystallized into one camp, their imperialist camp led by the United States in opposition to the camp of the socialist forces and persecuted peoples as the opposite pole in the struggle. The Soviet Union came out victorious in this war, and the socialist camp expanded to include a number of East European countries. The enslaved peoples rose up in vindication of their right to freedom and progress, and the Great Chinese Revolution led by Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party triumphed. This series of events and developments was the concrete factor that led to the coalescence of all capitalist and imperialist forces during the few years following the Second World War. The traditional colonialist powers represented by Britain, France, Holland, and Belgium labored heavily under the war burdens, while Germany, Italy, and Japan labored heavily under the burdens of defeat. A situation that enabled US capital to extend and penetrate into all these countries through the reconstruction process witnessed by Europe immediately after the Second World War. All this had the effect of crystallizing the imperialist picture and its basic features. 1. All colonialist capitalist forces gathered together in one camp, that of world imperialism, under the leadership of the United States. 2. The immense size of US capital, its wide field of activity, and its interconnection with Europe capital is the concrete basis for the unity of this camp and the unity of its interests as it is also the concrete basis for the united states leadership of this camp 3 conflicts among the partners in this camp that have from time to time taken the form of a conflict between colonialism represented by britain and france and neo-colonialism represented by the united states have remained only partial in the face of the main conflict that all these colonialist forces have begun to confront in their struggle against the socialist camp and national liberation movements Although this partial conflict between the United States on the one hand and Britain and France on the other has taken a prominent form, as was the case during the Tri-Party Aggression in 1956, or during the Algerian Revolution, or in certain areas of Africa, yet it has generally continued to be governed by more important and more serious conflict between imperialism and the forces of revolution. For the attempts of de Gaillet France to break out of the U.S. imperialist ring have not until now made any radical change in this picture. 5. The technical development and immense growth in the means of production and in the war industry have led to the strengthening of this camp's positions as regards both its control of the world market and its ability to defend its own existence and interests. We are naturally aware of the major conflicts and problems faced by the United States today and its internal conditions that are fraught with real crises from time to time. Or its inability to face a people's movement, as in the case of Vietnam, or in the aggravation from time to time of the conflicts existing between it and its allies. However, this side of the picture is complementary to the side of technical advance and production growth, and the picture is not complete unless the situation is viewed from both sides. Six, the U.S. today is endeavoring to maintain and defend its interests and to face the revolutionary camp with new techniques that differ from those used by colonialism in defending its interests by force and armies of occupation. This new technique is the basic feature of neocolonialism. The U.S. has established a series of PACs and defense treaties to face the socialist camp and to encircle it and limit its expansion, and also to neutralize national liberation movements. However, in addition to this policy of PACs, it follows an economic policy calculated to have local social forces participate in the profits derived from the exploitation of the people's efforts so that these social forces, by benefiting from the existence of neocolonialism, may become a bulwark behind which the U.S. can take refuge in defending its influence and interests. Moreover, by its neo-colonialist technique, the U.S. endeavors to contain national liberation movements through coexistence with these movements and the conditions created by them, and also through concessions that satisfy their national pride and assure them of some benefits, provided that its basic interests remain assured and protected. In addition to all this, it is attempting, through the threat of nuclear war, to force the Soviet Union to cease its support and backing of these peoples in their wars against colonialism so that it may defeat these peoples through local wars. Neo-colonialism is making full use of its intelligence and colonialist experience in its long and continuous effort to maintain its existence, influence, and interests. 7. Experience in Vietnam, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic has shown that, in the event of failure of modern techniques and the colonization of peoples, the U.S. will revert to armed force, invasion, and the landing of armies to preserve its influence, markets, and interests. In its liberation march to recover its land and freedom, the Palestinian people today face this unified imperialist camp with its technological superiority, its skill in fighting and neutralizing revolutions, its ability to take over behind other forces, its readiness for direct confrontation whenever it feels that the forces behind which it takes cover are no longer capable of striking at people's movements, and its endeavors to isolate national movements from the world revolutionary camp and neutralize the Soviet Union's efforts through the threat of nuclear war. The June War and what came before and after it are in reality nothing but a concrete manifestation of all this. The U.S. tried to contain the Arab Liberation Movement, to bargain with it and to keep it from organic fusion with the World Revolutionary Camp. It then tried to undermine and destroy this movement through Israel and its military power, and later tried to get in to contain it while it was in a state of weakness. Today, it is still trying through Israel, by providing it with all requisites of power, to keep this movement at its mercy in order to contain or destroy it. To face the situation, the Palestinian and Arab liberation movements must 1. Have clarity of perspective 2. Mobilize all its forces 3. Produce political, economic, and military programs to ensure such mobilizations 4. Adopt the course of popular liberation war to overcome the enemy's technological superiority and 5. Enter into full alliance with all revolutionary forces on the world level. It is this effective alliance that ensures the creation of the camp whereby we, and all enslaved and anti-imperialist forces, will be able to find the force that is capable of defeating imperialism in spite of its points of strength at this stage. Our first friends are the enslaved peoples who are suffering from imperialism and imperialist exploitation, of their efforts and wealth, or who are living in the same danger represented by the U.S. today in attempting to impose its influence on rising peoples. The peoples of Africa, Asia, and Latin America are daily suffering the life of wretchedness, poverty, ignorance, and backwardness, which is a result of colonialism and imperialism in their lives. The major conflict experienced by the world of today is the conflict between exploiting world imperialism on the one hand and these peoples in the socialist camp on the other. The alliance of the Palestinian and Arab national liberation movement with the liberation movement in Vietnam, the revolutionary situation in Cuba, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and the national liberation movements in Asia, Africa, and Latin America is the only way to create the camp that is capable of facing and triumphing over the imperialist camp. The Palestinian and Arab liberation movement, in alliance with national liberation movements in all underdeveloped and poor countries, will, in facing world imperialism led by the U.S., find a strong ally to back its forces and augment its power of resistance. This ally is the People's Republic of China, which in reality is still facing the same U.S. peril that is attempting to encircle and isolate it and impede its growth. The Great People's Republic of China, which is still experiencing the effects of underdevelopment caused by colonialism and imperialism, and which is still facing the same peril and the same contradictions, adopts this analysis of the basic international contradiction that governs the march of history at this stage, and consequently adopts the same revolutionary strategy of liberation followed by these people in facing colonialism. This strategic congruence creates the concrete ground for a revolutionary alliance that will place us in a better position to face and triumph over the enemy. The People's Republic of China adopts the Palestinian-Arab view in its analysis of Israel as an imperialist base that must be destroyed. In spite of all the United States' efforts to prevent the Soviet Union and the East European powers from coalescing with their liberation march, and although those powers adopt a position that is confined to preventing Israel from expanding its territory and extending its aggression, but does not involve the roots and foundation of Israel's aggressive existence, yet there is a contradiction between this position of the socialist camp and the Zionist imperialist presence in our homeland. This contradiction creates a ground for alliance between us and these socialist powers, and it is our duty to extend this ground through the extension of the Palestinian and Arab liberation movement, and through its decisive clash with its enemies so that these powers will stand with our liberation movement until its conclusive end. Imperialism and reactionary forces are today attempting to create a breach in the relations between the Palestinian and Arab national liberation movement and the Soviet Union and the powers of the socialist camp, and it is our duty through our vigilance to prevent imperialism from achieving this aim. Throughout the past period, the Soviet Union has been a major supporter of the Arab masses in their fight against imperialism, and all its projects and plans for our homeland. Through all of these alliances, we create the camp that will stand with us in our battle and will enable us to face the enemy camp. Along with this series of basic revolutionary alliances, we must also, through our fighting and political effort, and through the clear nature of our struggle as one of national liberation, draw to our side all liberation forces in Europe, America, and every part of the world. With such strategy on the international level, we can encircle Israel, Zionism, and imperialism and mobilize revolutionary forces on the world level to stand with us through our struggle. This picture may seem imaginary in light of the Palestinian and Arab liberation movements' actual circumstances at the present stage, but persistent revolutionary action in the promotion of the liberation movement to the level of a true, steadfast, and long-range revolution will ensure its crystallization and actual materialization. The translation of all these alliances will constitute not only sympathy, but also the true, effective support from which we create the ability to stand firm and triumph. This completes the chart of enemies and friends on the Palestinian, Arab, and world levels. A clear view of this chart will eliminate from our minds any superficial views of the battle and will determine the dimensions, forces, and general frame of the battle, and its position in respect to the historical, dialectical movement that governs this period of human history. Facing imperialist technological superiority. How can weak peoples face imperialist technological superiority? Our confrontation with the enemy camp represented by Israel, Zionism, imperialism, and Arab reaction will be through a strategy aiming at the concentration of the forces of the Palestinian Revolution on the Palestinian, Arab, and world levels so as to face this enemy with a revolutionary camp that is superior to it in size and numbers, but this alone is not sufficient for victory. One of the enemy's basic points of strength is its scientific and technological superiority, and this superiority is reflected strongly in its military capabilities, which we will face in our Revolutionary War. How can we face and overcome this superiority? The enemy's scientific, technological, and organizational superiority is not a light matter, nor is it of a secondary nature. On the military level, this superiority means quick mobilization for the enemy, the volume of this mobilization, the standard of training, the high quality of military leadership, surprises in arms and plans during the fighting, overall superiority in arms in modern warfare, and the ability to control and use them with shock speed. Any thorough scientific study of the 1948, 1956, and 1967 wars would clearly bring out the role played by the enemy's technological and organizational superiority and the reflection of this role in the military field and the enemy's triumph and our loss of these battles. It would be foolish to give our military defeats in three major confrontations an arbitrary, superficial explanation It would mislead us into the belief that we could have won these battles had it not been for certain coincidences or certain errors. Our failure in facing Zionism in Israel during the past 50 years cannot be explained except on the basis of our weak and meager political, economic, social, and military structure in the face of a movement and a society that are scientifically, technologically, and organizationally superior to us and our erroneous view of the battle and the confrontation strategy adopted by us until now. Our confrontation with Israel and imperialism cannot lead positively to victory if it consists of a classical military confrontation taking the form of a conventional war between the enemy's army and forces and our regular troops. Such a war would be won by Israel and imperialism because their superiority in arms and quality, their ability to use the modern war machine, and move it with shock speed and flexibility, and their economic capabilities that sustain such a war would enable them to triumph over us in such battles. Three experiences are a sufficient lesson for us. Conventional warfare, which today takes an extremely speedy form, is the manner in which the enemy exercises its overwhelming technological superiority and is also the manner whereby all the points of weaknesses in an underdeveloped society are revealed. Our reliance on the Soviet Union does not suffice to close this gap at the scientific, technological, and organizational level. It is not a matter of, quote, modern arms and the procurement thereof, unquote. The basic requirement is the human element capable of thoroughly understanding the power of controlling them, and using them in the most efficient manner, and utilizing the modern war machine. This in turn depends on the technological and scientific standard of the humans carrying such arms. This is a factor that at present is not in our favor, with the result that we are not positioned to face Israel, and behind it the United States which would throw our own forces into battle if the tide would turn in our favor through a conventional military confrontation. The weapons of weak peoples in facing imperialist forces and their superiority have become well known as a result of the experiences of peoples who have waged liberation wars in this age and achieved victory over imperialism. The technological and military superiority of imperialism is faced by weak peoples with guerrilla warfare and popular liberation wars. Through guerrilla warfare, we avoid direct confrontation with the enemy and consequently prevent it from exercising its full technological superiority against our forces and from crushing them with lightning speed. Guerrilla warfare aiming at attacking the enemy's weak points, quick withdrawal, and avoidance of direct clashes can cause the enemy small losses that accumulate daily without allowing it to face our entire forces and crush them quickly with its extremely mobile and deadly war machine. In this way, the enemy is made to feel that it has begun to lose its basic advantage and the balance of power begins to shift, slowly at first but accelerating with time, in favor of the armed revolutionary forces. While the guerrilla war against the enemy is going on, our forces increase, gaining experience, strength, and skill in the art of war, and attaining such numbers and quality as to render them capable of waging battles against units of the enemy forces. The cycle begins with a combination of guerrilla war and the beginnings of the popular liberation war. With the escalation of the revolution, the growing harassment of enemy forces and the enemy's need to distribute its forces in every town and village, and along the borders of all fronts, the image begins to shift towards large-scale and effective war. We cannot completely eliminate the forces of the enemy or achieve full liberation through guerrilla war, but guerrilla war is the first stage in a protracted war. The revolutionary army will be able to triumph over the enemy's superiority through the following conditions. Be politically aware and coalesce with the organized masses that support it and supply it with its human and material requirements. Ally itself with the world revolutionary forces who will furnish it with support and reinforcements. Gain experience and efficiency through its struggle and coalesce with the revolutionary party it provides it with a clear view and an organic connection with all revolutionary forces at all levels and with heroic determination engendered in it by years of oppression humiliation wretchedness and exploitation exercised by israel and imperialism on our land the revolutionary army will be able to triumph over the enemy's superiority we do not propose here to draw a military plan for a long extremely complicated war but only to refer in a general manner to the general form that this war will assume in light of the fact that we are an underdeveloped people facing israel Zionism and world imperialism with all their capabilities and their scientific and technological superiority. We propose the popular liberation war formula against the conventional war formula with which we faced the enemy in 1948, 1956, and 1967 and which led to our defeat in each of these rounds. In his book People's War, People's Army, General Guillaume says, quote, the balance of forces decidedly showed up our weaknesses against the enemy's power. The Vietnamese people War of Liberation had, therefore, to be a hard and long-lasting war in order to succeed in creating conditions for victory. All conceptions born of impatience and aimed at obtaining speedy victory could only be gross errors. It was necessary to firmly grasp the strategy of a long-term resistance and to exalt the will to be self-supporting in order to maintain and gradually augment our forces. While nibbling at and progressively destroying those of the enemy, it was necessary to accumulate thousands of small victories to turn them into great success, thus gradually altering the balance of forces and transforming our weaknesses into power and carrying off final victory. In other passages of the same book, General Giap says, quote, "From the point of view of directing operations, our strategy and tactics had to be those of a people's war and of a long-term resistance." The Vietnamese people's war of liberation proved that an insufficiently equipped people's army, but an army fighting for a just cause, can, with appropriate strategy and tactics combine the conditions needed to conquer a modern army of aggressive imperialism. The War of Liberation of the Vietnamese People proved that, in the face of an enemy as powerful as he is cruel, victory is possible only by uniting the whole people within the bosom of a firm and wide national united front based on the Worker-Peasant Alliance, unquote. In an article entitled People's Democratic Dictatorship, Mao Zedong says, quote, A well-disciplined party armed with the theory of Marxism-Leninism, using the method of self-criticism and linked with the masses of the people, an army under the leadership of such a party, a united front of all revolutionary classes and all revolutionary groups under the leadership of such a party. We have cited these passages because they indicate the basic features of the political thought that today directs all the democratic national liberation revolutions that have stood or can stand firmly in the face of world imperialism. Quote, revolutionary theory, unquote. Quote, strongly organized party, unquote. Quote, leadership of the revolution by the workers and peasants, unquote. Quote, wide determined united national front, unquote quote, people's liberation war and long-term resistance, unquote. These are the political strategic headlines of national liberation movements and democratic national revolution in the present age of imperialism.